2024. The meeting is being called to order at 4.37 p.m. This meeting is being held in person in City Hall, room 400, and broadcast live on SFGov TV. The Small Business Commission thanks Media Services and SFGov TV for televising the meeting, which can be viewed on SFGov TV 2 or live streamed at sfgovtv.org. We welcome the public's participation in person during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at the end of the meeting, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Public comment during the meeting is limited to three minutes per speaker. An alarm will sound once time has finished and speakers are requested but not required to state their names. SFGov TV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. Today, Today we, will, today we will begin with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. Before item one is called, I'd like to start by thanking Media Services and SFGov TV for helping to run this meeting. Please call item one. Item one, roll call. Commissioner Benitez. Present. Uh, Commissioner Dickerson is absent. Commissioner Herbert is absent. President Huey? Here. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Here. And Vice President Cizunas? Present. President, you have a quorum. The San Francisco Small Business Commission and Office of Small Business Staff acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatujaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming the sovereign rights as First Peoples. Please call item number two. Item two, approval of legacy business registry applications and resolutions. This is a discussion and action item. Uh, the commission will discuss and possibly take action to approve legacy business registry applications. Presenting today, we have Richard Crillo, legacy business program manager with the Office of Small Business. Thank you, welcome, Rick. Good afternoon, President Huey. Vice President Zunas, commissioners, city staff, members of the public. For any Baha'is who might be watching, happy Ayamiha. I'm Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager. I would like to acknowledge Michelle Reynolds, my colleague in the Office of Small Business, who provides beneficial assistance to the Legacy Business Program. SFGov TV, I have a PowerPoint presentation. Before you today are eight applications for your consideration for the Legacy Business Registry. Each application includes a staff report, a draft resolution, the application itself, and documents from the Planning Department. The applications were submitted to Planning on January 24th and heard by the Historic Preservation Commission on February 21st. Item 2A is Everlasting Tattoo. The business is a tattoo parlor founded in 1992 that is located at 813 Divisadero Street. When many other shops were still functioning as flash shops, Everlasting Tattoo set itself apart in the early 1990s 
by employing skilled artists who design pieces specifically for each customer. The par parlor has been instrumental in cultivating the new school tattoo movement, also known as neo-traditional or illustrative tattoo. This contemporary style draws inspiration from traditional American and Japanese tattoo art while incorporating bold colors, exaggerated proportions, and creative designs. Everlasting Tattoo brings joy to its customers and vibrancy to the neighborhood, helping capture the imagination of people and transforming it into art. The core feature tradition the business must maintain to remain on the legacy business registry is Tattoo Shop. <clears throat> Item 2B is Green's Restaurant. The business is the country's first and, honored, and most honored restaurant for gourmet veg vegetarian dining. Established in 1979, Green's Restaurant has offered distinct and ever-changing vegetarian menus dedicated to the seasonal harvest of local farmers and the organic gardens of its farm, Green Gulch, just 14 miles away in Marin County. With the panoramic view of the San Francisco Bay and Golden Gate Bridge, Green's Restaurant features grand win windows stretching floor to ceiling and a spacious warehouse at Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture. The restaurant draws the public to Fort Mason and raises the visibility and mission of the center to engage and connect people with arts and culture. Many customers come not only for the cuisine and the unique views, but as a pilgrimage to a pioneering restaurant in California cuisine and the farm to table movement. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring vegetarian cuisine. Item 2C is Jewelry Collection. The business is a jewelry store located in Union Square that was founded in 1985. Jewelry Collection sells high-end jewelry that are red carpet worthy, fine jewelry made with precious metals and genuine gemstones, and custom engagement and bridal jewelry tailored to match each client's budget and style. The business is renowned for providing high-end jewelry at wholesale prices. The customer base of jewelry collection is varied, including locals, tourists, celebrities, politicians, business executives, and staff and patients of the historic Art Deco 450 Sutter Building in which the business is located. The business also maintains a presence online. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is jewelry store. <clears throat> Item 2D is Liguria Bakery. The business is a family-owned and family-operated bakery specializing in fresh focaccia, an Italian flatbread. Liguria Bakery was founded in 1911 by Ambrosio Sirocco, who emigrated from the Liguria region of Italy. Soon after, his two brothers emigrated to the United States to run the business with him. Over the years, numerous family members owned and or worked in the bakery, and it is still owned and operated by the Sirocco family today. Lagoria Bakery has been an essential component of North Beach's cultural fabric. The business is a local favorite and one of the last remaining businesses of its kind. The dough is mixed in an antique stainless steel machine and baked in the original brick oven from 1911. The family still uses Ambrosio's original recipe from Lagoria to bake their sig signature focaccia. It is truly a one-of-a-kind business. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is bakery. Item 2E is On the Bridge Restaurant. The business is an iconic 
Japanese restaurant founded in 1992 in Japantown. On the Bridge restaurant embraces the unique, weird vibes that one can only find in San Francisco. It was one of the first restaurants in San Francisco to specialize in yushoku-style cuisine, a fusion of Japanese and European cuisines, including curries, cutlets, Japanese-style hamburgers, and spaghettis. They also have a variety of sake and beer <clears throat> that share the beauty of different prefectures in Japan to take folks on an adventure with every bottle. The business is harmoniously located on the Webster Street Bridge that crosses between two malls of the Japan Center malls, so it is literally on the bridge while being a bridge to Japanese culture. It is a true cultural connector in San Francisco. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Japanese cuisine. Item 2F is Progress Cleaners. The business is a family-owned and operated business that offers dry cleaning, laundry, and alteration services. Progress Cleaners was founded by David Yip in 1975 at its present location in the Western Edition. He had emigrated from Hong Kong in 1970 with his wife, Susanna Yip, in search of a better life. Prior to opening Progress Cleaners, David trained in the dry cleaning industry for a few years alongside his brother who had his own dry cleaning business in San Francisco. In 2001, David and Susanna's son, Sammy Yip, took over the business. Progress Cleaners serves a diverse community, mostly living within a one square mile radius of the shop. Customers are generally a mix of middle to lower income. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is laundry services. Item 2G is R&G Lounge. The business is a Chinese restaurant established in 1985 in Chinatown. R&G Lounge celebrates Chinese heritage through an iconic brand, traditional Cantonese food, and genuine excellence. Their reputation across the world has been built on the excellent and authentic Chinese cuisine they serve thanks to the high quality ingredients they use. R&G Lounge is known for their salted pepper crab, R&G special beef, lychee martinis, and many other delectable offerings. Originally, the restaurant only occupied one story in the basement, but the business expanded to occupy three stories in the building, including a full bar and three VIP private rooms. RNG Lounge is one of the a few Chinese banquet places remaining in Chinatown, which are important for community gatherings as well as family celebrations like birthdays and weddings. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is restaurant featuring Chinese cuisine. Item 2H is San Francisco Camera Work. The business is a nonprofit art gallery founded in 1974 and dedicated to new ideas and directions in photography. Located in the Fort Mason Center for the Arts and Culture, SF Camera Work pr provokes discovery, experimentation, and exchange through exhibitions and experiences for all who value, value new ideas in photography. Since it was founded, the organization has offered exhibitions, workshops, and lectures focused on experimentation, unconventional techniques, and socio-political themes. Its workshops and exhibitions draw people from around the Bay Area and attract many visitors and tourists. Having launched the careers of several prominent photographic artists, SF Camera Work is an integral contributor to San Francisco's position as one of the world's most important centers for creative photography. The core feature tradition the business must maintain is art gallery. Although the businesses met the three criteria required for listing on the legacy business registry, 
and all have received a positive recommendation from the Historic Preservation Commission. Legacy Business Program staff recommends adding the businesses to the registry and has drafted a resolution for each business for your consideration. A motion in support of the businesses should be framed as a motion in favor of the resolutions. Thank you. This concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. There are business representatives present who may wish to speak on behalf of the applications during public comment. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. Um, commissioners, any questions, comments? Nope. Um, let's open it up for public comment. Is anyone present for public comment? Please come up to the mic. If you want, you can form a line to your right if there's more speakers. Caught on my earring, sorry. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is A. Preston Mint. Um, I'm a Bay Area visual artist. Uh, I'm a professor at California College of the Arts and I'm the executive director of SF Camera Work. Um, Going through the legacy business process is especially meaningful for us right now as we're turning towards our 50th year in operation. Um, in 1974, SF Camera Work began as a scrappy artist-run project and we are still here, run by artists like myself and championing and supporting emerging local talent while also contributing to San Francisco's place as a world center of arts and culture. Uh, coincidentally, SF Camera Work was also the first place that gave me an exhibition opportunity in the Bay Area, uh, an experience integral to my growth and learning. The directors and curators welcomed my ideas, supported my experimentation as a young artist, and gave me an introduction to the San Francisco art community. Fast forward 20 years to now, and it's a privilege to stand here um, and to honor the hard work of the artists and art workers who kept SF Camera Work operating by promoting local artists' careers, providing educational programs, and fostering meaningful conversation around art community and social justice among the people of San Francisco. Um, as we're witnessing spaces for world-class photography like Pier 24 and institutions that produce world-class photographers like the San Francisco Art Institute shutter their doors across the city, SF Camera Work's mission to promote this art form has become ever more clear and vital. With our recent opening in our very first ground floor accessible space in the company of other galleries and theaters at the Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture, looking out over the bay, we're planting the seeds of another 50 years of success and the benefits and opportunities provided by the Legacy Business Program will help us to reach that. I look forward to the inclusion of SF Camera Work and the other businesses represented today on the Legacy Business Register. And uh, thanks to Rick, to Woody LeBounty, our friends at Fort Mason, and, for the, and to the Commission um, for contributing to the vitality and success of small businesses and nonprofits. Thanks. Thank you. Any other speakers? Any other public comment? <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. So we're from On the Bridge Restaurant. Uh, my father and my mother have owned the place since 1992, and the daughter just taking over and helping out. Um, so first of all, thank you, everyone, for your time and consideration today. Shout out to Rick for being patient through the whole application process. And thank you to all the people watching at home. Um, we have, it's been a struggle being in Japantown District 5, but we made it this far. So shout out to all the businesses that made it this far. We see some familiar faces, thank you. Um, and just a little history about the place. 
It's been there for, yeah, 30, since 1992, and we've seen the community change over time, but it's an honor to still be there and to serve the community. Um, even during the pandemic, that's when we started to get to know a lot of different communities coming over as well, pitching in and helping one another. So it's been an interesting ride so far. Thank you very much. Uh, my mission is when I open the restaurant, uh, many uh, American people who are not familiar with Japanese culture are misunderstanding the food of uh, what we enjoy in the home country, Japan. And my style, as we mentioned, Yoshoku style, which is fusion uh, cuisine, one of uh, our regular customers. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, now my mission is also uh, sake. We have more than 200 different type of sake. And uh, since Japan lost the war, Japanese lost the confidence. Uh, we have, uh, the sake history is 3,000 years old, same as grape winery from Europe. So my mission is now to spreading enjoyment of sake we call it sake is hyakuyaku no cho, which means sake is one of the best medicine among the hundred. So I like to spread for the American people to enjoy taste of sake. It's really uh, deep. I took the three classes at the winery class at the State University, but as far as I'm concerned, sake is way more complicated. There is no hot wine, right? Hot sake, you can enjoy when you feel cold, chilly. So I do not charge that like another restaurant. My price is almost same as supermarket. But people keep on coming, and I explain uh, what the sake is. And uh, last October, I was being invited by Japanese government to see the uh, rice field. And I felt the same way when I went to Izakaya in Japan. They displayed menu sake. We call it jizake, local sake. And they, there's no name, just a jizake. So I pushed them, we have to proud what sake is. And sake is from where? What type of rice you use it? Who is making? You proudly put it out on the menu as well, your bottles. That's our tradition. So we have to proud what the Japanese is. So recently, I'm so glad Japanese government changes. Uh, we use last name first and first name second. If you are noticed, if you watch TV, yeah, before we just imitate like a, a, a American way. First name first, but now last name comes first. So like this, I, this is one of my mission to uh, proud of what the Japanese is. That's why I'm sitting at that restaurant over there. I, arigatouzaimasu. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much.
You're going to be the 14th, right? I think you're going to be the 14th legacy business. So um, Japantown is thriving because of businesses like on the bridge. So very grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? All right. Seeing as there's no public comment, um, public comment is closed. Commissioners, comments and questions? Oh, actually, uh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I just want to thank all the business for coming out. I always say it, but I appreciate your hard work and sharing your house, your culture, and your hard work with us because you make San Francisco San Francisco. So I appreciate everyone with you and your time because I know right now you probably should be at the restaurant or, or the <laughs> business. So appreciate it. So, Commissioner Benitez. Well, ditto to Commissioner Ortiz as well. Um, I have a personal experience with On the Bridge. Um, we've been going there, my wife and I, for over 10 years. And they probably know Harlow, too. Harlow actually turns nine years old today. Um, oh. And so we've been going even before we had Harlow. So I appreciate um, everything that you do, everything that you do for the community. And I know that um, during the COVID times, it was very challenging, but you showed your resilience, um, which I think is really great. Um, and one of the best memories I have of, of even taking Harlow there, she's been going there ever since she was a baby. They've always saved a special seat because she always had to bring her stroller there so and lots of nice little toys uh, every time that we went to eat and congratulations for you you know and thank you for everybody for submitting your applications and um concerning yourselves for the legacy business i think um this is really great for the city um and i think this round of applications that we have is absolutely amazing so really great stuff thank you uh vice president Zunas. Thank you, and yes, thank you everybody for coming and representing your businesses. I love that we have some Fort Mason-based businesses. I think that's an area we've been lacking in this program, so um, that, that part of town, so it's great to see some um, collect art collectives here, and um, of course, love the multi-generational family businesses. You know, I, I know it's not easy working with your parents, <laughs> but um, you you help them get here, so that's a that's something they're gonna remember and something that's literally in the books. So thank you for being uh, before us today. Thank you. Um, I just had a couple of things. One is uh, thank you very much, Grace, for coming today. I really appreciate all the work that you do in Japantown. I get your newsletters. I see all the hard work that you're doing, and it's really made the neighborhood so vibrant and so much fun for everyone to visit. So thank you. Um, for all of our businesses today, you know, I think one of the things that um, that was brought up right now in terms of like the pivot into sake reminded me that you know on the front end of things as patrons, oftentimes we think of legacy businesses as like you know just a part of our our community, our day. We believe that they're just so solid they're just going to be there all the time but then on the back end you're constantly innovating and constantly doing something new and adapting and being flexible because that's what's kept you here for so many years and I think that's the it's the effort and the ingenuity I think that we see in our small business communities that many times we might take for granted when we just see the outcome of just a business actually surviving and and being very resilient to you know, other forces. So I really applaud all the work that I'm sure goes into all of your businesses. And um, 
And yeah, I hope you celebrate tonight. And all the businesses who couldn't make it in today, they're probably at their <laughs> business, hopefully watching on SFGov TV. And um, yeah, so thank you very much for all that you do. Any other comments from commissioners? No? Okay, seeing no further comments, um, I think we'll have to take a motion and roll call. Oh, does somebody, sorry, does somebody want to make a motion to accept, to approve all the legacy businesses? We'll do it. I move uh, to accept all the uh, businesses on, uh, submitted before us on the registry. Is there a second? I second. <laughs> yes, second. thank you. Still learning. <laughs> Me too. Motion by Vice President Zizuna, seconded by Commissioner Benitez. I'll read the roll, Commissioner Benitez. You approve yeah. or, or not. Approve. Aye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Aye. Uh, Commissioner Dickerson or is yes. absent. Commissioner Herbert is absent. President Huey. Uh, yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. And Vice President Zazunas. Yes. Motion passes. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Okay. I, All right. Next item, please. Item three, presentation on San Francisco economy. This is a discussion item. The commission will learn about the latest economic metrics regarding the San Francisco economy and discuss current and potential impacts to small businesses. Presenting today, we have Ted Egan, Chief Economist with the Office of Economic Analysis. I know. Thank you very much, Ted, for coming in today. It's my pleasure, Commissioners Ted Egan from the Controller's Office. I'm wondering if we have the slides. Great. As, um, as many of you know, our office produces uh, reports that now come out every other month on the status of the city's economy, and we issued our most, late, our most recent report in early, um, earlier this month, and I'm going to walk through that. Um, please stop me anytime if you have questions or you uh, want more details. Um, I'll just uh, um, start with some of the highlights as we saw them. Uh, we have data through December, um, and so that's what this report is based on. And December was a good month. In the October to December period, the San Francisco-San Mateo County area added 7,700 jobs, which is certainly healthy for a two-month period. It was mainly seasonal, though. It was mainly in, in a lot of it in retail as stores geared up for the holidays. Um, we also had a lot of growth in education and in healthcare in particular. Uh, the city's unemployment, which has always been in our labor market in general, has been a very different story than our return to office downtown story. But our, our labor market continues to be very strong, as labor markets are across the country. Our unemployment rate is 3.5%. Uh, that's up a percentage point from about a year ago when it was 2.5%, but it's still very low. It's still around what would be normally considered full employment in most places. Um, and that hasn't moved very much in the past few months, despite the fact that we've seen some evidence of cooling until, until just that last month's jobs report. Uh, some of the other indicators, though, are, are suggestive of a slowing economy. 
um, for example, the ridership on the Muni Metro system to downtown is uh, off where it was in the summer. The same is true of BART ridership to downtown. Um, and not just transit, the auto indicators we look at, which are freeway speeds and bridge crossings are also somewhat off of a high in, um, in the summer. At the highest level, it kind of looks like the first half of 23 was a pretty good period for economic growth. The second half of 23, not, not as much. Uh, of course, this is happening in a context where uh, businesses are dealing with high interest rates and increased financing and borrowing costs. And this is tending to put some headwinds in front of an economy that had been very strong coming out of the pandemic, even in San Francisco. Um, our hotel revenues, uh, that recovery still seems to be kind of stuck in neutral. Our hotel revenues are about 70 to 75% of normal in any given month, and that is well below the recovery of many of our peers. Um, in housing, we're also not seeing much of a recovery in housing prices, although we are in our benchmark against the state. We did recently see an uptick in housing permits, which is good news. Housing permits had been quite slow for most of uh, 2023. So with those highlights out of the way, I will, I will share some more of the details with you. This is the chart that shows total industry employment. You can see kind of that peak we reached in the middle of 23. All of these charts are now showing just the last year. Um, and that's why these charts are a lot flatter than they were before, but that's just the way things are. We had, again, as I said, a bit of growth in the first half of the year. Things have been flat uh, since then, a little bit of recovery towards the end of the year that's largely seasonal. Uh, we're also looking here at the civilian labor force, which is the number of people who reside in the area who are either employed or unemployed. That's also been trending down slightly. It's a combination of people dropping out of the labor force and not being, uh, not being um, uh, replaced with new entrants to the labor force. This is a chart that looks sector by sector at both the four-year now change in employment in the area by industry uh, which is the orange bars and the last two months, uh, which are the blue bars. So to deal with the sort of recent story, as I was mentioning, we see a lot of growth in trade, transportation, utilities. That's primarily retail. That's primarily related to the holidays. We're also seeing growth there in education and health, which is mainly healthcare, and also some growth in government. We're still seeing declines in tech, uh, which has now lost about... 6% or so uh, of its employment locally uh, uh, from its peak in 2022. That's in the information and professional services sector mainly. We also saw uh, uh, some job loss in financial services. When we look at the, the orange bars, that's where we are after four years. Uh, we still have a phenomenon which tech is much stronger in the city in terms of its total employment than it was at the start of the pandemic. And we also have a lot more jobs in education and health, particularly, again, in health uh, since the start of the pandemic. We are still recovering in leisure and hospitality, uh, where our jobs are 20 to 25 percent down based on which industry you're looking at. Uh, trade, transportation, utilities is still down. Construction is still down. I'd say those are the three hardest hit sectors of the economy. And we saw some growth uh, in one of them. Um, and a little bit of recovery in leisure and hospitality, but construction is still struggling. This is just the city's jobless rate and the number of employed residents. Um, 
uh, which I mentioned the, the labor force is trending down and that's also showing up in the number of, un, of employed residents. And the unemployment rate is again higher than it was a year ago, but it's been fairly steady the last several months. And that's still quite a, an enviable unemployment rate, which is very low by the standards of California counties. One thing we've started to look at in the past, and just in this report, is job listings, which can be kind of a leading indicator of where hiring is going. And the job search engine indeed has a very good team of economists who produce a regional metro-wide um, hiring index. So you can see how your hiring is doing in your metro area and how that compares to others. We're benchmarking them here to the start of the pandemic which would be 100. Um, and San Francisco, the red line, we were a little bit above pre-pandemic at the start of 23, and now we're quite a bit less. So this is suggestive of a cooling trend to come in employment. That, again, is probably just what we've been expecting in terms of higher interest rates starting to be a drag on hiring. Um, we've gone from over 100 uh, down to about 80% along with the San Jose Metro. Uh, those are among the weakest numbers among any metros in the uh, in the U.S. But you can see even the places that have been on fire like Austin and L.A. and New York, which are also somewhat stronger than us, everything has been cooling. And again, that's a sign of rising interest rates, which were intended to cool the economy, starting to have their effect. It's likely we will see not a recession in 24, but a slowdown in job growth in 24 as the, these decline in listings start working the, their way through hirings and, and total employment numbers. <clears throat> we also track every, uh, every week actually, but it goes in our bi-monthly reports, how the return to office uh, situation is doing. And this data comes from Castle Systems, which is tracking security uh, card swipes at commercial office buildings across the country. So it's it's a and benchmarking it to 2019. So it's a, an interesting way to again see how you're doing against other regions. We're looking at this as a four-week moving average. So the fluctuations there are really about holidays or or bad weather, particularly the the winter holidays. I think the overall story, both in San Francisco and across the country, is 2023 was a very flat year in return to office, and. Um, uh, despite the fact that some places were still adding office jobs, we're not seeing more people physically in the office than we were in 2019. And we saw recovery a bit in 2021 and in 2022. In 2023, you know, San Francisco basically started the year in the low 40s and ended the year in the low 40s. And most of the other metros in the country were the same situation. So, um, if people were counting on that return to 100% of office after four years, it's probably not going to happen. And that's showing up, as we know, in the office market. This is data from uh, JLL, which is showing just the last four quarters in terms of, of office vacancy rate, which is now north of 30%. The peak uh, prior to the pandemic office vacancy rate we've seen in San Francisco was after the dot-com crash in the early 2000s, and the numbers there were around 20%. So we're looking at something that is significantly new here in terms of the level of office vacancy. Um, San Francisco, though, still has the third highest office rents in the country, and uh, they came down a little bit in uh, the last quarter, but uh, they haven't come down very much since 2020. 
And that's something that we do expect to happen, but it's taking a, a fairly long time. Another thing we track courtesy of data from the Office of the Treasurer and Tax Collector is the number of businesses that start, particularly in restaurants and bars, retail trade, and neighborhood services. And uh, again, this is um, looking at the raw numbers on a three-month moving average. More indication of a slowing. Uh, the first half of the year looked okay. And since August or so, things have been trending down. So, you know, in the January period, the three-month moving average was only around, uh, you know, 78 or so new restaurants. Um, earlier in the spring, it was well over 100. Um, and the same thing is true in retail trade. Retail overall is a sector that's been quite flat uh, for the last year or two in terms of employment recovery. This is a look at We Track Hotel Weekly, courtesy of data from SF Travel. Um, and that spike there was, I think, in, in rates that you're seeing there is, is related to a convention. So conventions can make, I think that was the J.P. Morgan convention, which can lead periodically to very high rates. Um, the overall occupancy rate, which had gotten up to 80%, pretty close to normal, um, has gone back down. That is also typical of the season. And um, uh, occupancy in, this, in the winter season in uh, the 50s is not that, it, it's low, but it's not incredibly unusually low. Um, when you look at rates and, and um, occupancy rate together, you get a sense of hotel room revenue per night. And if you benchmark that to 2019, that's what we're showing in this chart against Pier Cities. We are the red line at the bottom. As I mentioned before, most places are at or around 100%. Seattle's a little bit lower. LA is a little bit lower. San Diego and uh, New York are, are both doing very well. We're around 80% of, of normal. And uh, it's an interesting issue in the context of our hotel recovery, I mean, sorry, in, in terms of our air travel recovery, which has been pretty good. Uh, in the fall, we were almost back to 100% of 2019 levels in domestic air travel. That slipped down a little bit. Uh, and international is... Uh, is also doing quite well, it's 96% of normal. Um, I've been digging into this a little bit with colleagues at the airport, and part of the issue appears to be that a lot of the airport's business is barrier area residents going out as much as it is, in fact, more than it is tourists coming in. So one of the, re you know, we've always asked this question, where, are, if all these tourists are coming in, where are they staying if the hotel occupancy is so low? And the answer is they, they live here and they're flying out and then they fly back. And that's uh, a big part of that business, like more, well, more than half. So at least that's one mystery solved, even though it's not great news and maybe we shouldn't focus so much on just the raw airport numbers. As I mentioned, we also look at transportation metrics, and this is uh, just the raw crossings every month across the Bay Bridge and the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. All throughout 23, we hadn't quite uh, reached 2019 levels, but the recovery in, in auto traffic is quite a bit stronger than the transit recovery. Uh, we've also seen slippage in that since, since the middle of the year. And again, it's another situation in which the first half of the year showed a lot of economic activity and the second half not so much. This is freeway speeds, which is sort of the opposite, which is when they're high, that's a sign of not a lot of people driving. And when they're back to normal, that means the usual PM congestion that 
that we all remember from pre-pandemic days. So in the first half of 23, we were pretty close to the you know, 24 miles an hour uh, average freeway speed we would see in the afternoons. That's up to closer to 30 now. And again, that's just a sign of fewer cars on the road. And now to move on to transit, I mentioned that the Muni Metro numbers had slowed a bit since the summer. Uh, they're in the 50s, around 55% of normal. Um, and that's obviously doing considerably worse than the, than the auto measures, but again, somewhat better than BART, which is still again slowing in the second half of the year, but peaked around 34% and is now around 30% of 2019 levels for the month of December. A bunch of things go into that, weather and other, and other things, but of course the, the remote work and the off, weak office recovery is of course driving that. We also look at housing. Um, we've seen some weakening. There, the apartment rent story has not been an exciting story in a few years. Uh, and the only thing we've really seen recently is a slight drop of about 4% since the summer. Again, it's just one more data point of, uh, of a little bit of slowing since the summertime. And it's also something that we see when we look at housing prices, uh, single family and condo prices in the city. Uh, we've started to see statewide housing prices start to recover. You can see a little bit of an upward drift uh, when interest rates rose a lot. Um, mortgage rates went up and that created affordability challenge uh, and other challenges in the housing market. Um, and that seems to be writing itself at the state level, but again, not so much in San Francisco where housing prices are still weakening relative to the state and in absolute terms. Um, and finally, as I mentioned at the outset, we are seeing some good news the last few months of the year in housing permits. Again, we're looking at a three-month moving average year of housing permits. And for the, we didn't have December out yet when we did this, but for September, October, November, we were actually above the pre-pandemic monthly average, which is one good news story. As you can see, for most of 2023, we did not have a lot of housing permitting. Um, that's all of my slides, and I'm happy to take any questions from the commission at this time. Thank you very much, Ted. Let's see, um, commissioners, any questions, comments? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Thank you, Ted, as always. Awesome stuff, exciting stuff. Sometimes, you know, you know what I mean. Um, I, had a, I had a question regarding the commercial rent ask. You said it hasn't gotten to where we thought it was going to be, right? It's still kind of high. Where, where, where do you estimate it should be landing at? Um, that is a big, big question because what office brokers are telling me is uh, one of the reasons you're not seeing rents come down is you're not seeing a lot of potential tenants come in and say, if you cut the rent to this, I'm moving in. So the attitude is if there isn't a lot of demand, why should I cut the rent? At least that's the attitude where people is now, where people are now. Um, on the other hand, you're starting to see sales of office buildings in 23, which is at least a sign of motion in the market. And you've seen cases in which the purchases of these new office buildings, because they basically reset their cost basis, able to charge significantly lower rents than, than you know, the rest of the market. And so that dynamic, which is going to increase as leases expire and loans come due, 
um, you're likely to see more sales at a significant discount. We've seen 50, 60, 70% discounts. The buyers of those properties, all of whom have wanted to reenter the office market, by the way, uh, be able to do so at lower rents. And then we will really see, you know, what kind of traction uh, the market can get with lower rents. It is absolutely kind of, I think, the biggest question for kind of the medium-term future of the city. Because if you think about how markets in the city can adjust, the office market is the one market that really hasn't adjusted yet. And there's a lot riding on it. If it adjusts and people come in with really low rents and, you know, we're now similar to the rents of other metros that we've been way above in the past and there still isn't any other demand, well, then that's, then you're really going to have to put on your thinking cap and figure out downtown. Uh, on the other hand, if the office market adjusts and rents come down and everybody says, wow, it's now's my chance to be in San Francisco, you know, it's job done in terms of your downtown plan. It's just now you have a different set of office tenants, new people want to use the space, There'll be more people riding trains. There'll be more people eating lunch. And, and that's a tremendous source of momentum for a downtown recovery. I think the frustrating thing about downtown is really how slow this process has been. Uh, but I wouldn't rule out that it could happen and that could be a significant contributor. Even if all this office space never gets filled, and frankly, I don't think it will all get filled, it's a source of momentum. I mean, when you get leases being signed at lower rents, there's a new set of workers who have to say, oh, it would be nice to live near my job. And suddenly there's housing demand downtown. Right now there's no housing demand downtown. Oh, and so, you know, businesses, I'm seeing more customers. Maybe I'm gonna stay open a couple more hours or maybe that vacant storefront, somebody takes a chance on it. You need positive momentum and we don't have a lot of positive momentum right now, but that could be a source of positive momentum. So that's why it's such an important question. This is great. And then my follow-up question to that is, so it's contingent kind of the new ownership that will reset the actual rates to not these artificial astronomical lease per square foot. What what do we have information on how, how many loans are due downtown? Because it seems like that's the reset when those loans are due that people are either giving them back or that's when the deal's at 60% under. I don't have any official data on that. I have... Um good supply of anecdotes and some other data from a data vendor that I don't necessarily trust. Um, what I'm hearing is a lot are coming due in the next couple of years. Um, and that will lead to, and also I think the sales that we've seen are starting to establish, you know, there's some price discovery there. Uh, there had been a very wide gap between kind of supply and demand and the sales are kind of an indication that that gap is closing. So I think with leases coming due, which really forces people's hands because there is income. And if, and if your lease is coming due and you can't replace that rent and maybe your lender doesn't want to lower the rent, it clarifies people's options. And I think that's also the market moving forward. Um, got another one. The, the BART ridership from, from peak, that 30%, that's, that's scary. Is it, is it, I mean, I know, but even the correlation with the data vacancy on the lease, you know, commercial leasing downtown, it still seems like it just doesn't equate to that significant. I don't think it's necessarily tied to commercial leasing, but I do think it's pretty closely tied to office attendance. So if your office attendance is 45% of normal 
and most people got to work on transit, and um, you shouldn't expect more than 45% recovery in transit. Now, as it's happened, with fewer people driving, some transit riders have switched to driving, and that's why the bridge recovery is better than the transit recovery. But nobody's fully recovered because not as many people are going to the office, and there just aren't other reasons to do it. And we're looking only at weekday BART ridership to, uh, to downtown. Weekend is a bit better. But really, the weekday downtown BART business, which is the core of BART's business, hasn't recovered because people aren't going to the office. And until that office market sorts out, don't expect that to change, frankly. I mean, you, if we had thought that return to office mandates and CEO fist pounding was going to do it, and still might. I mean, they're an influential group, and that struggle is still going on. It hasn't worked yet, right? Um, and we have our particular office workers are particularly powerful in the world of office workers. Like San Francisco tech talent is the talent everyone wants, right? Move to San Francisco for your AI company. The talent is here. Well, if you're that talent, you're not going to get pushed around to return to the office if you don't want to. Maybe in Wall Street, you will be. Um, so what that means is if the return to office doesn't happen, then the office adjustment has to happen, and we find out really who wants to use that space. And then the last one, you kind of, you did answer it, actually, was the employments at SFO versus yeah. the hotel. I, I had written down a question before you answered it. You answered with the local residents traveling more. That's the employment. But does Airbnb or any of these sites, like, you know, siphon some of the business from our hotel operators? <laughs> I think that, I think less, less and less. We did a study of Airbnb, it was a couple of years ago now, as part of the intermediate length occupancy issue in the city. And we looked, we had a consultant kind of scrape their website and look at their listings. So much of their business now is 30 day plus, because uh, there aren't the same limitations or the city doesn't enforce them in quite the same way apparently. And they're just not competing with hotels. They're basically betting on the short stay hey, spend some time in San Francisco before you go off to spend some time somewhere else for your remote work lifestyle. And um, so again, I don't think, and I don't want to speak about an individual company's business, I don't think they're radically different, the home share business, than the overall hospitality in terms of their business travel. Uh, so I think that they're, they were never a big share of hospitality in San Francisco. I think they're probably smaller now. One thing I did notice, my, my friends in the leisure business told me the, 80, the average, average daily rate in hotels was like high compared to like pre-pandemic, at least from what I remember. Uh, we're not seeing it there most weeks. Some weeks, if there was a convention, we're seeing it. We're getting the compression, okay. um, and, uh, but not, not most weeks. Not consistent. Yeah. Uh, I, something I'll mention about the air travel, which is interesting, which is about tourists. Um, the international inbound tourism has also done really well. And it's interesting that this has happened uh, without much recovery from China, which was a major international market for us before the pandemic and has a lot of economic problems at the moment. And what the uh, airport folks have said is travel from India has really made up a big piece of that difference. 
Um, so much so that they're trying to figure out how to stock the duty-free shop at SFO with things that Indian tourists want. It's such a new trend in the marketplace. Um, so that's something we're going to start looking at. What's thank, going thank on? Thank you, there. Ted. Like always, thank you. Appreciate you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Commissioner Benitez. Hi, thanks Hi. for being here. Uh, sure. This is so interesting and very informative. Um, one comment, I didn't know about the speed of the cars had an impact on how you um, kind of format your your information. So that was completely new to me, so it's super interesting. Uh, secondly, I was just curious if any of this information is shared with any of the founders or CEOs of companies here and see what kind of impact that they might be able to make with their workers to bring more people back into the office, which will hopefully trickle down into more business into downtown. And I guess how transparent is this also to, to, to companies here um, in San Francisco? Well, we put it out to the public every couple of months. And particularly when we started doing it, it was getting a lot of coverage. I think people know. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, frankly, the past year, I think in 2021, 2022, it was about letting people know, hey, there's something really concerning happening in San Francisco. 2023 was stopping people from going way overboard the other direction who were like riding off the city. And, and again, one of the things we're not seeing in any of this data is like downward spiral. So the last few months, I haven't gotten a lot of where's your doom loop status reports, but there's no doom loop here. There's just, you know, flatness. So I think people know it, and I think different companies will have different views. And frankly, you know, again, the CEOs know what works for their company, but there is a lot of economic research saying, hey, this work from home thing is probably pretty good for productivity. Um, it makes workers happy. <laughs> you can hire workers who live further away and make less money so it can control your labor costs. Um, it can be a win-win. The thing it's not a win-win for is the city that was set up to sort of support the five day a week really dense downtown. And so uh, if what we wind up with at the end of this office adjustment is a bunch of people who are in downtown, maybe from further away less frequently, then I think that kind of changes the value of downtown, but I still think it has one. The thing I was most worried about at the start of the pandemic was everybody saying the office is done and we're going to the cloud. That just isn't gonna happen. You know, that is like, that probably would lead to doom, but a, okay, in the office half the time, guess what, guess where all the offices here, they're here. So we, we're going to be part of that world. And, uh, and I think, you know, our location in the center of, uh, the strongest economic region in the United States really assures that we have an economic role to play. Um, but I do think the adjustment's going to be somewhat painful. Vice President Zuzunas. Thank you for coming. We always enjoy you having a, uh, being before us and giving us all this information. And as you know, we, we try to use the data you present to us to advocate for policies friendly to small businesses. So as much as it has been hard to kind of differentiate what is small business data in the past, um, now that it's been a little while since you've come to us, is there any are there any tools that you've been able to um, identify that can help us understand um, some of the the trends as they apply to small businesses? So, for example, um, downtown. When when I had to work down there, you know, during pandemic, I uh, you know I was in the office building with the small business administration, and you know 
I saw around me all the small businesses were the ones that had remained and actually the corporate ones um, were closing, you know, the mm. specialties, the yep. the Starbucks, right? The, the chains. Yep. Um, be, and so um, kind of <coughs> as we're incentivizing uh, vacancy you know, businesses to move into vacant storefronts and we want to encourage that uh, the businesses that re remained are the ones that are maybe we should empower to uh, open another business or something is there a way to to identify if some of these office adjustments are resulting in evictions um, some of the selling off of of buildings uh, is there any data to tell what if there's retail storefronts impacted by that and what types that was um, my first kind of question. I don't know of a um, official source of data on commercial evictions. Mm -hmm. um, we have sales tax data that should show when a business starts and stops paying sales tax. Mm -hmm. But having worked with it for many years now, I can tell you that did the business really close or did it sell? Did the business sell or did it just change its name and anytime it's a separate record is it a new business or is it just the same people very hard to tell um it is possible and i haven't done it and now i want to go back to my office and do it is really look at trends in um retail rents uh because we do have a lot of data from the commercial rents tax mm -hmm. which is paid um I believe non-formula retail rent is exempt, but formula retail is, but at least it would be some sense of across the city of where the rents are. The problem of defining the small business is, for this is so challenging because a Starbucks, for example, location is gonna show up as a small establishment because it's a small establishment. And they don't look through that and say, no, it's connected to a giant corporation. Um, your point about the chains pulling out could very well be true. It, it sort of instinctively seems right to me, I, but I wouldn't have the data to be able to break businesses in those two categories to really kind of confirm that. I think the thing that is most challenging for small businesses, not so much how they break down by size or businesses, how they break down by size, but how they break down by sector. Um, because if you remember that chart that I showed at the beginning about tra retail trade, wholesale trade, leisure and hospitality, that's where most small businesses in San Francisco are. Those entire sectors are really slow to recover. Uh, leisure and hospitality, I was just doing this, uh, so retail employment is still 12% down. Hotel employment is 24% down. Uh, we're a little bit better in restaurants. Restaurants is around 95% of normal. Um, downtown is much worse still than the rest of the city. Um, uh, but it's just, you know, the way the city has changed with the tech companies getting a lot of investment and sort of walking away from, from physical office work along with other professional service, that linkage they used to have between them and the downtown ecosystem and the small businesses that were there is kind of broken by this remote work phenomenon. So you're not getting the demand that's there from every new person that gets hired by a tech, com a tech company. Uh, and so again, it's another thing that's going to wait until we see a restructuring and a repurposing in the office market, which is not to say there aren't things you can do. I mean, there are always things you can do. Small businesses in San Francisco kind of labor under a, a regulatory burden and a fiscal burden, but particularly I think regulatory burden that is unusual in California and, and relief there would help. 
Um, the other thing that I always think of about small businesses in San Francisco is um, a lot of these new businesses that we track are not going to be founded by people who are from San Francisco. Uh, and a lot of them are chain type operations or they are restaurants that are very high end oriented. Like we're not seeing a lot of people start retail stores in San Francisco. Um, and I think that may be partly a workforce issue. I mean, we had the discussion earlier about the multi-generational family business and how that's rare. Well, but that's also where entre entrepreneurs of small businesses come from is you learn it through the family. And if you don't learn it through the family and you want to do it, we don't have really a mechanism to prepare people to do that. And it's worth thinking about now because the office rent trends I'm talking about, I'm convinced, are going to create similar opportunities in other types of space like ground floor retail. Mm -hmm. And and I think vacant to vibrant, which I know you guys are uh, have been a big part of, is a classic idea of taking advantage of market opportunities to build capacity. Um, and all we need now is the customers to come back and, and do that. But that's something that, that we could expand upon and do, I think, across the city, not just in terms of programming spaces for people, but supporting small business entrepreneurship and kind of renewing the class of people who run small businesses in San Francisco. Thank you. Okay, so we, I, I understand the sales tax data is always kind of skewed by the the enterprise and bigger um, entities. Is there any type of metric in which we can look at local serving um, economies and and their contribution, as opposed to like traded sectors that are taking money maybe elsewhere, but local sector meaning it's being reinvested kind of locally. Um, we have data from sales tax as to the money going from customers to the business, and they don't report anything about where it goes after that. Uh, and we have a name of who the registered agent is for sales tax. We don't know what, I don't know what to do with that information. Um, we don't know if a certain business is owned by private equity or anything like that. So, um, uh, yeah, I can't think of any city data that gives us that because, again, yeah. the, the, the tax information businesses give us, you know, is limited in that respect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. The um, FTB could do it, but the, what? the Franchise Tax Board has uh -huh. that information, but they're not in the data sharing business with local no, governments. No. <laughs> I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but we've right, asked. Right. right. Okay. Thank you. And then just kind of last question, because I remember there being a... a um, ballot measure around sales of buildings that is there going to be a windfall to the city with all these big sales um, a certain additional tax bracket that we put in recently I feel like I have some recollection of this there was a, a doubling of the transfer tax for yeah. large properties um, that voters approved in 2020 I believe and the revenue has been very light uh, because there weren't any sales and Frankly, the tax didn't help because it widened the gap between buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, that gap was created by remote work and nobody really being able to properly value an office building. So to the extent that the office market on the sales side kind of unlocks, we should see a recovery a little bit in that revenue. But again, if the buildings are selling for 30 cents on the dollar compared to before, 
a pre-pandemic kind of velocity of deals is still only going to get you 30% of the of the tax base recovered. Uh, we did double the rate, so that will help that recover. Okay, thank yeah. you for that reminder. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, oh, um, I have s several questions, but an um, uh, easy one is that um, looking at last year's recovery, how you, you know, we, you had detailed like January and February being very strong, and then now we've gone through several months that have been very flat. Do you anticipate this first quarter to come back a little bit and then for us to see anything? Or is this it? This is. I think what we're seeing is the sort of uh, first waves of the storm of rising interest rates. And uh, all the signs are that we're not going to enter a recession, but I would say the consensus forecast for, for GDP are about half of what they were nationally of a year ago. And so what that means is we're just not going to have as much growth. Um, probably until the end of the year, uh, things will start to pick up. So I would expect this sort of slowdown in growth or, or softness in the job market to continue for two or three quarters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Going back to kind of the hotel recovery, it's kind of interesting. I was driving through um, like the marina district, like from Fisherman's Wharf through the marina area, and I was kind of just trying to take a tally of like, you know, if I were a tourist, like where would I stay? Do we have any new hotel openings or hotel renovations that are like really exciting that generally draw people to certain destinations? I don't know if there's, you know, data on that or. <coughs> I mean, I think I would only know what I read in the paper about that, and I haven't read very much about it. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not, I mean, there'll be some kind of people who take a chance. I guess there were a couple on 7th Street uh, that were opened a few months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people, I think, looking at it. Um, I think it's really going to await a recovery in the market. It's like a lot of this other real estate investment. Uh, when people see that we've really hit a floor and starting to see growth again, um, I think then, then some of the upgrading will, will recover. The, I think good news for, for the Lombard Street area is we've seen a big pivot. I don't know if it's good news or not. We've seen a very big pivot to leisure travel. And, and, and maybe that means that people who were, you know, hotels that were formerly catering to business travelers or conventioners are now getting leisure travels. And... Um, <clears throat> that's something for them, but maybe they're taking some market share away from Lombard Street and Fisherman's Wharf. I don't know the details of that, uh, but I do know that that pivot has happened, and generally those are more cost-conscious, you know, visitors, mm -hmm. um, and people are not coming on on uh, on sort of business travel because people are doing a lot of that remotely. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because it's like um, I was also taking note here, like talking, thinking in my mind about how, um, you know, perhaps we'll talk about this after your presentation, but um, maybe how uh, travel looks a little bit differently. That's probably something that we need an update on. Mm. Um, and let's see. Oh, um, do we do you follow metrics of like new businesses? opening in the Bay Area region. Like, I'm wondering if that um, gives any indication of like what the demand might be for the downtown area. It's a really good question. We were looking at the Census Pulse survey, um, which wasn't a count of new businesses, but it was a kind of business sentiment index. 
And how likely were you to hire more people? How likely were you to expand? I think they have slowed that down. We haven't found a replacement source for that. Um, your question, though, about new business startups is a good one. I know that's available at the state level, but I'll have to see if it's available for a metro level. You know, to continue the discussion we were having earlier about the office market adjustment, I think both new and existing businesses uh, may view San Francisco location very differently when rents are lower. I mean, I think we all know many office uses have been priced out of San Francisco the past you know, two or three decades. And um, there's going to be intense competition because everyone has their office space in their area. Uh, but San Francisco has, I think, very unique advantages. And so a more competitively priced San Francisco office product could, I think, draw some people back or draw a wider, different type of businesses into the offices in the city. Mm -hmm. I mean, I picture it almost kind of like a vacant to vibrant program for like different types of businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Different service businesses that don't need to be in ground floor retail. And it would be interesting to have almost like an SF open house where people could, I mean, we do merchant walks pretty regularly, but to be able to do like a walk through office spaces, the downtown area when things look vibrant and to be able to kind of, you know, stoke people's imaginations a little bit about what could be there. Because yeah. I feel like there are businesses that would love to kind of scale into something, but that leap doesn't feel tangible quite yet. And to be able to like actually, you know, have somebody um, take a risk, it, it requires someone else to kind of like take a risk, right? And so mm -hmm. um, I, I think that would be kind of interesting to see what could potentially happen like in the... You know, floors. as you all know, the, the city does first year free and has been doing that since the pandemic. And that could be built upon as a business attraction tool, not just as a relief for, uh, you know, local companies starting up again, but a pitch to, it doesn't even have to be a tiny company uh, to say, hey, not only are we eliminating the rent difference between where you are in Pleasanton through, through the market, but we're also working on the tax differences. I should mention, by the way, that Although you didn't ask, I'll just mention, we've also been working, uh, the controller's office, the controller, outgoing controller, Ben Rosenfield, and I've been working on a business tax uh, proposal that we hope will stabilize the city's business tax base and increase confidence for businesses to come back to downtown. The big tax difference between San Francisco and other cities in the Bay Area we've gotten away with for a long time. Um, we're increasingly concerned we won't be able to get away with it forever. And so we're looking on ways to really stabilize that and and really remove or minimize the penalty of growing your job base here and signing an office lease here. So that will also be helpful for this process we're talking about. Yeah, and thank you so much for that work. I know that that's a huge <laughs> task to wrap your mind around and, and produce you know um, changes that'll be really beneficial for all of us. Um, let's see. Oh, the, the other thing I was going to mention was, um, you know, I've, I've actually recently opened a retail ground floor retail business. So I'm maybe a total anomaly in this <laughs> environment. Maybe I should have heard this talk first, but I opened one in uh, the center of San Francisco, Chinatown. And so, um, I, I have a completely fresh, pair of eyes on like what this environment looks like right now and I get to talk to so many different um, 
you know, tourists as well as neighbors and, and things. So one of the things that I'm noticing in the neighborhood is something that you had mentioned. Um, you know, I think when we were doing our survey, I, one of the things I wanted to know about was kind of like the age of business owners. And, um, you know, in Chinatown, anecdotally, I don't know the data, but, you know, the population of small business owners there is aging and, and they're probably going to just, you know, work for the rest of their lives, which is, you know, very commendable. Um, and I, I want to definitely support people being able to, you know, um, continue on with their business as long as they want to. One of the concerns I have, though, is that if we don't have the metrics of, like, kind of the age of, of businesses, sometimes, like, we're going to fall into a place where we might become very reactive to vacant storefronts if there isn't um, succession planning in place, mm. if there isn't, like, a proactive approach. And that uh, vacant storefront kind of thing then um, creates pressure, I think, for people to, like, put something in there. And so my th my concern is that if we're not kind of like being proactive about how to support businesses as they continue, you know, you know, with their business, and we aren't creating mentorship programs for people to um, run mom and pop businesses, what does that future look like for our ground floor retail? Um, it's troubling, and it's this is a trend that city has seen for 25 years before the pandemic. Um, and I think it's behind that kind of generational issue that I spoke about a few minutes ago. Um, I can share a piece of data uh, that I ran based on census data a year or two ago that looked at the average age of basically bosses or businesses in the city by industry. And retail trade had the oldest bosses, CEOs, it was a job title. Uh, in the um, in the city, the average age was over 50, and not just in Chinatown, citywide. Tech workers, or the tech industry, the average age is like 36. So young people are looking where there's opportunity. So first of all, I would say the number one thing to focus on, create the opportunity, city. Make sure that it actually is profitable. It's not going to happen if it's not profitable. You know, relying on people's habits to do it for the rest of their life is great. But you really want people to say, no, no, I'm doing this for my job because it's a good job. And if you don't have that, you can't, oh, we'll look around for something else. What is the something, something else given the spaces we have is always some small business that isn't that different from what was there before. You know, you're not going to turn it all into ground floor housing, even if you wanted the city to look that way. They're not all going to be yoga studios. Yoga studios is a business. Um, so... It almost doesn't matter what the business is, but it has to be able to be profitable in that space. And preferably, if it's not competing head-to-head -head against you know, online retail, that's great. And if it is, figure out that kind of local niche. San Francisco has done this before. That's why I think it's worth trying again. I mean, if you had said anywhere in the United States in sort of 1975, you were going to go all into neighborhood commercial districts, uh, people would have laughed at you. But that was San Francisco's general plan, and frankly, it worked until just a few years ago. Or we've held on for just a few years ago. I, we don't have the small businesses that we had in the 1990s. Um, but it worked for a long time, and I think it can work again. But I think we have to be very realistic about the business models, and we have to look at the barriers that we're putting in the way. 
Um, I mean, for example, people talking at the state level about relaxing rules downtown for entertainment sounds like exactly the right thing to do. One thing you can do no matter where downtown goes, more nightlife is going to be good, right? I mean, no one's going to dislike that. Um, and I th in every business, there are other ways to do it, to sort of bring our regulations into more what is typical in other places. Uh, I do think that, um, you know, San Francisco's density is always going to create an advantage for small businesses who want to serve their neighborhoods. Um, but you really have to understand that connection. Mm -hmm. So best of luck to you in Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, oh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I had more of a, just a broad question asked, not based on the presentation. Last year we had two quarters that contracted, so it's not a recession. You said you don't foresee a recession in 24. Some of the businesses, especially in my area, the mission feel like we're in a recession, mm -hmm. especially with inflation and whatnot. Even though some of the data that you have publicly actually helped to, to see, we're not doing that bad actually in the mission. Like the data shows it. But if we're not going to be in a recession in 24, if last year, even though we were contracted with two consecutive quarters, is it like an unsaid recession? Is it like a new thing? Like, is it going to get worse? Like, that's what I'm saying, because if it feels like a recession now, and if it's not going to ever be called a recession, then... Um, I think the... It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think, two consecutive quarters. There was one dropping quarter that was, I think, inventory-related. But... Um, People have to call recessions. So the National Bureau of Economic Research looks through a bunch of data, including GDP growth for two consecutive quarters, and sort of calls it. And the, 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 the main economic story of 2023 at the U.S. level is incredibly resilient labor market in the face of really rapidly rising interest rates. In late 2022, everybody says we're doomed in 23 because there's no way... The Fed was reluctant to raise interest rates for like six years coming out of the global financial crisis. They finally raised them to like 1%, and there was this big concern, are we going to tip the country back into recession? And then they go from zero to five in about two and a half months. And since when can this rickety economy take that shock to capital costs? Well... It didn't happen in 23. Hiring is really strong. Job listings are really, they're a little bit cooler, uh, but there was no jobs recession. And uh, I think I can just tell you what they think this year is a consensus. They're thinking slower growth. They're thinking one, one and a half percent growth the first three quarters of the year, and then some sort of recovery to that. San Francisco is not on the strong end of that spectrum if you look across the United States. You know, we're at the weak end of that spectrum. So it could be a little worse than us, as the last four years have been worse for us. And frankly, along with downtown, the mission has not been one of the booming areas of the city. So it might be worse than the mission as well. But I don't think we're going to have, in the same way we don't have our little local doom loop spiral, I don't think we're going to go into the kind of recessionary spiral where People, tons of people get laid off, so tons of people stop spending, so businesses have to lay more people off. That doesn't look like the cycles. People have spent and spent and spent. You know, they, they burned through their pandemic money and they kept on spending. And was, you know, there's, that's 70% of the economy and it has the ability to keep the economy afloat, and it did. That's, that's very interesting. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I was, uh, I keep starting every sentence with this. I have apparently one of the things that I'm thinking about. Um, you know, looking at the economics of the city and looking at the economics of any situation, right? I feel like that relies heavily on like this intellectual kind of like, you know, data mining and then data analyzing. Um, on the flip side of that, what I'm seeing is um, a lot of growth, like in the arts and culture kind of sectors. And I guess when I think about San Francisco as a whole, you know, it, in its arc of history, there's always been the two, yep. right? Like this, these identities. And I'm wondering, I guess at this point, like when we start to look at recovery economics, including, you know, our cultural recovery, um, like what does that picture look like for you? Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is that the cultural sector has always been part of the economy. Um, artists make a living, writers make a living, performers make a living. Um, the challenge and interesting kind of inflection point we're at now is that group was hit the most hard of any group by the pandemic at the core of kind of leisure and hospitality, the shutdowns, um, performing arts, um, visitor industries. Uh, that sector as a whole has had a pretty good recovery and 23 was a good year. And one of the things that I think has been, I don't have any real evidence of this, but I suspect it's made a difference and will continue to make a difference, is actually the cost of housing in San Francisco. Before the pandemic in 2017, 2018, not that everybody's buying condos, but just by way of example, a condo in San Francisco is six times the national average, and it's now below four times the national average which is still a lot, but that is a very big shift in four years. And that is not leveling off. Those charts that I was showed you of the divergence, that's what a more affordable San Francisco looks like. Um, we're not yet, I think, to a place where the market is delivering lots of housing opportunities to folks who work in like the restaurant industry. It looks like the restaurant recovery that we've seen involves more people working here and people commuting in from Concord or Richmond or other parts of the Bay Area so far. But we also haven't seen a lot of influx of anyone else to sort of prop up the housing market and it's not done falling. Um, we may be entering a period in which there isn't a, a ferocious housing demand in San Francisco because the folks who had been propping it up for a long time just don't feel the need to be that near to their offices anymore. And they'll be in San Francisco if they like it, just like everybody else. But maybe that's not everyone. And so that can create an opportunity for people who may have said San Francisco's like got everything I want as a cultural center, except I can't afford to live there, which we all know has been the major part and narrative about culture in the city for a long time. So I don't want to oversell this, but this is a trend. Something has tipped. And the real question is, how far down does it tip and who can take advantage of it? Um, you know, I look every time the census data comes out, like the first day, who moved into San Francisco this year? And uh, in 2022, the most recent data we have, and this is a 1% sample, so it might not be the most accurate thing in the world. There's no clear sign that there is any kind of pivot in San Francisco. In other words, the, the people who moved to San Francisco in 2022 looked in every 
dimension you can analyze them like the people who lived in San Francisco before. There hasn't been any sort of major change in the city's population. But as I say, I don't think this dynamic is, is done adjusting. And, um, you know, one of the things people have assumed, I think, incorrectly about folks who uh, work in jobs that are not highly paid in San Francisco is, oh, they all must have lived here since the 1980s and they're in rent controlled apartments. And when they move, that's not true. A lot of people moved to San Francisco even during the 2010s to not make a lot of money. They overcrowded, frankly, and they spent a ridiculous amount of their money on housing, and it was really important to them. And it's a lot to ask to sort of get that group to make those sacrifices every time we have a housing boom. But I just think it's easier for people to be in San Francisco now than it has been in the past. And I think that's a little bit of hopefully wind, you know, in the sails of that cultural part of the economy that you're talking about. So there's not a lot to report, except, yes, we've seen some recovery in that industry, which is good. Um, it's better than the rest of leisure and hospitality for the most part. Um, and and uh, there are signs that some of these trends will continue. Great. Thank you very much. Um, any other questions from Dice? No? Um, thank you very much, Ted. This is yeah, incredibly educational for us. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, we can't wait to see you back with new, more, and uh, I don't know. Hope more hopeful. This was still hopeful. There's so many opportunities for people. I think that's kind of what I got out of this presentation is that right now is your time to think on what you want to do, how you want to be creative, and how you want to invest into your city, you know, into your community. So I think, you know, this is from someone who just risked it all <laughs> and opened a business. But, you know, it, I feel like this data is incredibly hopeful in itself. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Oh, actually, I think we have to take public comment now. Did we? Oh, you don't, you don't have to answer. Okay. Um, any public comment in the room? No? Seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. Thank you so much for your time. All right. <laughs> Next item, please. Item four, Board of Supervisors, file 240088, Legacy Business Assistance Program. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will discuss and may take action on an ordinance amending the administrative code to create a legacy business assistance program. Presenting today, Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager. Welcome again, Rick. Good evening, <clears throat> commissioners, city staff. Attendees, Richard Carrillo, Legacy Business Program Manager with the Office of Small Business SFGov TV. I have a PowerPoint presentation. Today I'm going to present a proposal that originated from the Office of Small Business. The proposal is an ordinance amending the administrative code to create the Legacy Business Assistance Program. It was developed by the Office of Small Business with input and guidance from the City Attorney's Office. It was jointly sponsored by Mayor London N. Breed and Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin. They introduced the legislation on January 30th. The ordinance was referred to the Small Business Commission on February 6th for comment and recommendation. Following is the Legislative Digest, after which I will go through the legislation. The proposed ordinance would create a new program in the Administrative Code in a new Section 2A246. 
Presently, the Legacy Business Program has two sections in the Administrative Code, 2A242 for the Legacy Business Registry and 2A243 for the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund. Section 2A243 was added to the Administrative Code by voters in November 2015. At the same time, voters made changes to Section 2A242. Consequently, changes cannot be made to either section without going back to the voters. The proposed ordinance would create a new program, the Legacy Business Assistance Program in Administrative Code Section 2A246. Within that program would be the Le Legacy Business Assistance Program Fund, which would be used for grants and financial and business assistance to legacy businesses and landlords of legacy businesses, as well as marketing, promotions, branding, and programmatic expenses to support legacy businesses. The SBC would oversee the program OSB would manage the program and report annually to the SBC on activities and expenditures of the program. <clears throat> for any grants under the program, OSB would present rules and regulations to the SBC for adoption, subject to disapproval by the Board of Supervisors. I will briefly review the proposed ordinance. It begins with definitions. Legacy business is the definition from Section 2A242. Program means this proposed Legacy Business Assistance Program. Fund means the Legacy Business Assistance Program Fund that we would set up in the financial system. Next is the creation of the Legacy Business Assistance Program Fund into which any funds would be deposited. The fund would be a category four fund it is not automatically appropriated every budget year, which I believe means just needs to be budgeted every year. It does accumulate interest for amounts over $50,000, and unspent funds do carry forward every year. OSB staff agrees that this is the appropriate category. Oversight and management. The Small Business Commission shall provide oversight of OSB's management of the program. OSB shall report annually to the Small Business Commission and OSB shall manage the program. Operation of the program. There are five categories of projects for which funds could be used. These are very general categories that covers everything that the Legacy Business Program has done since it was established in 2015 or conceivably could do in the future. Three of the categories are on this page. Number one, grants to legacy businesses. Number two, financial and business assistance to legacy businesses. Number three, grants to landlords of legacy businesses. Number four, financial and business assistance to landlords of legacy businesses. And five, marketing, promotions, branding, and programmatic expenses that support legacy businesses. It's not to say that we will necessarily do all of these things or have the funding to do all of these things. What the proposed ordinance does is create a framework in the administrative code that can accommodate any source of funding for any purpose that supports legacy businesses. Rules and regulations. For any grants or financial assistance provided to legacy businesses or landlords of legacy businesses, the Office of Small Business would create rules and regulations that would be presented to the Small Business Commission. Any rules or regulations would be subject to disapproval of the Board of Supervisors meaning they would be presented to the Board of Supervisors and would pass if the supervisor did not take any action.
The rules and regulation section concludes on page four, the last page of the proposed ordinance. Background issues and considerations. Two types of grants have been administered through the Legacy Business Historic Preservation Fund. Business assistance grants, eligible businesses received funds based on the number of full-time equivalent employees. And rent stabilization grants, property owners receive funds as an incentive for entering into long-term leases with legacy businesses. <clears throat> in 2021, because of limited funding, the business assistance grant was discontinued and only rent stabilization grants to property owners have been awarded. Many, but not all, property owners share a portion or all of the rent stabilization grants directly with legacy businesses. The proposed ordinance would give OSB flexibility to create grant rules that otherwise would not be possible. OSB would replicate the rent stabilization grant as a new grant, the business stabilization grant, with slight changes to the rules. This would only be for new applicants. Existing rent stabilization grants would be honored and phased out as the grants expire. The new grant rules would come before the SBC at a later date as an action item. The proposed business stabilization grant would require that landlords share at least 50% of the grant with legacy businesses. In addition, it would eliminate the special contingency provision that landlords are allowed to put in the lease, which allows a landlord to cancel a legacy business's lease if the land landlord does not receive $4.50 per square foot through the rent stabilization grant, which is the maximum amount that we pay. That all said, Office of Small Business Staff recommends approval of the ordinance amending the administrative code to create the Legacy Business Assistance Program. Thank you for your time and consideration. Any questions? Thank you very much for that, um, for the presentation and for all the work in creating this program for, um, well, it's not a program, it's a fund for the program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Let's see, any, commis any commissioner questions? Um, oh, Vice President Zuzunas. Just wanna say thank you. I know that um, since the start of this, this program, you've been really iterative with what, what works for the small businesses, what makes sense for the city, and um, as much as we can, you know, how to shape it. And so I know this is a long coming step to bring it to the board and just want to give you um, the credit where it's due, so thank you. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? Um, seeing, well, I don't actually have any questions, but again, <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for your time um, before we, we bring it to public comment, but is there any public comment? No? Oh, actually. Sorry. So did... The city attorney like signed off on that and everything. That's cool, huh? That's great. Cause I remember that was like the holdup at one point. The legal um, piece of it. So it's just on the record of as Rick stated, uh, this legislation has already been introduced at the board of supervisors. So that means the city attorney's office mm. has signed off on it. Um, and in case it didn't come off uh, through the presentation, but I think it did. Um, we are creating a new fund so that we are not in violation of the uh, voter approved funds that are in existence, but we would essentially create a 
the exact same program with the requirement that landlords uh, must give at least 50% of the funds to the legacy business tenant. Oh, okay. So the owner provision is still in there. So right now, under the existing uh, assistance, the rent stabilization yeah. grant program, the owners are not required to give any of the money that they receive from the city to the legacy business tenant. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, and again, this is upon signing either a new long-term lease or or extending. And so this would create this new this ordinance would create a new fund um, with the same programmatic elements uh, with the the key change being that landlords would be required to give at least 50% of the money received by the city to the the uh, to legacy it, business way tenant. to make it work yeah. good job everybody okay um any public comment no seeing no public comment uh public comment is closed and does anyone want to make a motion to approve the, um, I liked your slide. Where did the slide go? I said exactly what the motion would be. Oh, yeah. Um, to recommend with support? Yes, to recommend the support of the, um, of the Legacy Business Assistance, assistance Program. Is that what it was? <laughs> go ahead. Business please. Stabilization. There we go. Oh. A second. Oh, should I, can I make motions? Oh, I thought you were, yeah. sorry. Oh, sure. Well, I make a motion to approve the Legacy Business Assistance Program. I'll second. Okay, motion by President Huey, seconded by Vice President Zizunas. Commissioner Benitez? Aye. Uh, Commissioner Dickerson is absent, and Commissioner Herbert's absent. President Huey? Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Sazunas? Yes. Motion passes. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. <clears throat> All right. Next item. Item five, officer elections for commission president. This is a discussion and action item. The commission will nominate and vote on the new 2024 commission president for each office, in this case president. I will call for nominations. Nominations require a second to be considered. Nominees will then have an opportunity to make a statement after uh, nominee statements. Other commissioners can provide comment. Following everybody's comments, we'll have public comment and then a roll call on each nomination. The first nominee to receive four votes shall be deemed elected. So with that, are there any nominations for president? Um, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I move to reelect President Huey. All right, I second. <laughs> Awesome. Um, do you want does to say anything? Does the nominee want to make a statement? <laughs> <laughs> um, is this where I, I state my case? Why mm -hmm. I think I would like to? Um, why I think I would be a good candidate to serve? <laughs> well, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to be able to serve with you all and um, all the past commissioners who haven't um, who aren't here right now but um, this has been 
I think being on this commission, being able to serve with you all is really one of the highlights of like any day. And I've enjoyed advocating for small businesses so much. Um, last time, I think I might have written something down, and this time I thought I'd just wing it. Because I really, now I feel like after um, four years of being on this commission and last this last year's serving as um, leadership, I I just really, you know, I just really enjoy it. I don't know how to express that beyond, like, it fits completely into all the things that I um, I think are really important for the city to move forward. Like, I love small businesses. I love community building. I love, like, even legislation. I do love, I actually love, you know, hearing and, like, learning about all the legislative um, ideas that people have. And, um, and I love connecting all these dots and it's just incredibly rewarding. Um, if I were to be voted or elected again, you know, some of the things that I'd like to see for the future for this next year are, um, you know, building leadership within our small business, um, communities and our small business owners. I know time is always such a limited, resource for many of us but I think you know being here with you you all like I feel like we have a special voice in this city that nobody else has we are out in our communities all the time talking to so many different people hearing so many different stories every single day I mean I don't think anybody sitting behind a computer and you know like <laughs> gets that opportunity every day to just be able to talk to people about all their different concerns. And I think it's such a special thing that we get to do. And I would love to see more small business owners and small business you know, um, advocates, not only on our commission, but on every commission. I think you know, as we listen to more and more presentations and educate ourselves about the city and how it runs and how it operates, you know, I think it gives me more insight into the fact that we need to be on around every table, you know, like we need to be talking about transportation. We need to be talking about, you know, travel and hospitality. Like there, there really isn't a table in city hall that we wouldn't have, you know, a well-educated and well-lived, you know, voice, um, to bring. So I, um, all that to say, I hope, you know, we can kind of find that ripple effect amongst what we do and encourage our small business um, networks to really consider how they can um, share their voice. You know, I mean, really is just, all we're doing is really sharing our experiences, right? And it's, I think that's enough. So, um, yes, so that is my that is my statement. Thank you very much. And thank you for your nominations. Do any commissioners want to comment before we vote? Vice President Zunas. President Huey, I uh, it's an honor to serve on this commission with you. I really appreciated your leadership over your last term and I I'm ready to support you as we move forward into another term and 
I'm excited that um, you know all of the questions and big ideas that we've thrown out in in the last pa past couple of years during the economic recovery are now starting to formulate in, into legislation. Our 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 office leadership is taking forward, and our you know friendly agencies are working with us on. And I think that's only um, you know a testament as, of what's to come. And I, I really do see that not just the ethos of, of this space has, has become more proactive, but I see um, it being able, you know, you've given us the fabric to, to mesh with other areas of our, of our city really well. And I think that the commission had a hard time for that, with that for a while, and we were kind of, you know, in our own bubble. And I really see us um, becoming a, a, you know, collaborative force more than we ever have, so I'm, I'm excited for what's to come. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena. Yeah, I just want to echo what Vice President Sassoni said. You, you unsiloed us. So we, we're, we're like, we're moving like as true San Francisco should be, right? We should wiggle in every neighborhood, and we should know everybody in every neighborhood. We shouldn't just be in the Mission or Chinatown or Soma or wherever. So you've really been pushing that either with effort or it's just your flavor, but I really see we've done a lot of stuff that we haven't done in the past, so I appreciate and just keep being you. Thank you, I appreciate you. Commissioner Benitez. Yeah. Well, I know I'm very new to the committee still, but looking forward to working more with you and I share the sentiments with my fellow commissioners here as well. Thank you. All right, well, I guess um, we'll have to open it up to public comment. Any public comment? <laughs> um, let's see. Seeing no further public comment, public comment is closed. And I guess I'll take the roll. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner Benit. So, uh, motion to nominate Cynthia Huey for president for 2024. Uh, uh, Commissioner Benitez. Yes. Commissioner Dickerson is absent. Commissioner Herbert's absent. Uh, President Huey? Yes. <laughs> Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Zazunas? Yes. Congratulations. Motion passes. Thank you. Um, item right. six Officer Elections Commission Vice President. This is a discussion and action item nominating the 2024 commission vice president. Uh, this is the same process. So I will ask for any nominations for vice president. Oh, Commissioner Ortiz-Cartagena. Can I make a motion to reelect vice president Sassoonis? Yes. Is there a second? Um, I'll second. Seconded by President Huey. Would you like to say anything, Vice President Sazunas? Thank you. Thank you to all my com fellow commissioners and President Huey. I also really love my time on this commission and have started as a rookie and now feel like I'm, you know, one of the more senior members and I echoing the, some of the look, looking forward themes that President Huey mentioned, I think leadership development is something that we are both interested in 
in empowering our, our newer members to maybe rise in the ranks and learn, uh, you know, help help bring in the nexus of what you see in, in your own small business communities, help elevate our, our base in addition to our own leadership within our ranks. And I... Um, I still feel like it's relevant to be here. It's still useful for, for my own small business community. I, I am hoping that um, we're gonna see some legislative moves too. I've gotten word from some supervisors' offices that some recommendations that our, our body made before COVID are now being looked at as, hey, these are easy laws. We can, you know, these are wins. Um, the Small Business Commission did all the hard work already, you know? So I think we can position ourselves um, to follow through on some some really, you know, passionate items that, that um, our members have brought before. I'm looking forward to, to um, you know, honoring um, the legacy of, of our, our past commissioners, too, who were advocating for things like, L, you know, um, increased LBE, um, local business enterprise, and, and um, contracting opportunities and equity, as well as how small businesses can participate in social impact and food access work. I think that's something that's become such a theme through COVID, and I think we can materialize some of that mutual aid that we saw with the small business community. So I'm, I'm excited to um, kind of operationalize some of the real grassroots stuff our small business community has been involved with in the last past um, years and I would be honored to to serve again as vice president and I appreciate the nomination. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I appreciate you Vice President as soon as we've been in the trenches we've done a lot of work in community especially for like very underserved businesses that don't necessarily get enough recognition or, or attention so I, I love your, your hustle, I love your fight, and I love your advocacy, so I appreciate you being Vice President of this commission. Yes, I'm, I would be honored to uh, serve again with you. Um, it's, I know this year, this year kind of went by so fast already. Or, I mean, 2023, I guess it's over now. <laughs> but this upcoming year, you know, we're, I'm really hoping that we can um, you know, set some goals together and like really do a lot of the things that, um, and continue to do the things that you've always advocated for. And, um, you know, you always teach me so much about legislation, how the SBA and all, all the different business assistance entities work. Um, it's been a real learning process for me and you've really helped with, um, with educating me as well as, you know, much of our small business community. So thank you very much for your voice on those, um, and yeah, I think there's still plenty more for us to do together. I think, uh, I guess now, oh, now we'll open it up for public comment. <laughs> Seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. I'll read the roll for um, nominating Commissioner Zizunas for Vice President in 2024. Uh, Commissioner Benitez. Yes. Commissioner Dickerson is absent. Commissioner Herbert's absent. Commissioner Huey. Yes. Uh, sorry, President Huey. <laughs> um, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yes. 
And Vice President Zizunas. Yes. Motion passes. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. <laughs> item seven, approval of draft meeting minutes. This is a discussion <laughs> and action item. Um, commissioners, any comments on the minutes? No questions. Um, any public comment on our draft meeting minutes? No public comment. Um, seeing no further commenters, public comment is closed. Uh, there a motion to oh, approve sorry, the minutes? Yes. Is there a motion? I'll, I'll make a motion to approve the minutes. Motion by President Huey, seconded by Vice President Zizunas. Commissioner Benitez? Yes. Uh, President Huey? Yes. <coughs> Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Zizunas? Yes. Motion passes. Minutes approved. Great. Next item, please. Item 8, general public comment. This is a discussion item allowing members of the public to comment on matters that are within the Small Business Commission's jurisdiction and not on today's calendar. Any members of the public who would like to make comments on items not on the agenda today? Seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item 9, director's report. This is a discussion item, an update and report on the Office of Small Business Programs, Policy, and Legislative Matters. All right. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, first of all, I want to extend my congratulations also to Commissioner Zazunas and Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena, as you were both recently reappointed by the Board of Supervisors. So congratulations. And soon we'll also be joined by a new commissioner, um, once he's sworn in, Dimitri uh, Thierry Cornette. So we're excited to uh, welcome someone new to the body as well as a new industry. Uh, that would be represented here amongst the small business community. So uh, with that, then in terms of legislative updates, I uh, just wanted to share that recently uh, Mayor Breed, along with Supervisor Ronan, uh, introduced um, legislation uh, to extend the first-year free program by one additional uh, fiscal year. So uh, that's really exciting. It's been uh, an incredible program that has uh, we see a benefit day to day, where people are, you know, as they're starting a new business or expanding, literally saving over even ten thousand um, dollars just from this program alone. So really appreciate that ordinance, uh, that program and the ordinance. So since the program started in 2021, over 6,000 businesses have enrolled in the program, which is managed by the Treasurer and Tax Collector's Office. So also thank them for administering and managing this program. And also since the beginning, uh, the city has waived nearly $2.6 million in fees. So uh, again, incredible um, investment in our small businesses uh, through First Year Free. Uh, secondly, you heard about the Legacy Business Program um, uh, revision to the admin code, which um, our staff, um, our Legacy Business uh, Program Manager, Rick Carrillo, uh, just presented on, so I won't go into those details. Uh, third, wanted to share that um, we had, as you heard about uh, recently, uh, Mayor Breed's legislation regarding small business permitting. Uh, that had actually take, taken effect in um, January. However, there was a duplicated version of that file uh, to uh, put through a couple more changes. One thing I wanted to point out is that this legislation, the duplicated file, would principally permit nighttime entertainment on the ground floor in the Polk Street NCD, the neighborhood commercial district, as well as allow nighttime entertainment use as conditionally, with a conditional use authorization on the second floor 
within the Polk Street Neighborhood Commercial District. And this was brought to our attention by the Lower Polk Community Benefit District. So we're excited to see that change uh, to help uh, fill some vacancies and, and revitalize that corridor. So that uh, duplicated file was heard by the Planning Commission last week. Uh, it was actually approved and supported by the Planning Commission as well. Uh, and so the next stop will be at Land Use Committee uh, sometime in March. Uh, also just wanted to point, bring to your attention that there was a resolution introduced at the Board of Supervisors recently in support of Assembly Bill 2359. This would increase the number of liquor licenses uh, in San Francisco that would be allowable. These are the Type 87s for the neighborhoods. And in particular, for the Excelsior and Outer Mission, would increase the Type 87 licenses from a total of 5 to 10, so essentially doubling um, that number. And um, all five that were allocated to the Excelsior Outer Mission have actually been utilized already, so um, as a way to help support full-service restaurants. Um, this uh, assembly bill, again, it's 2359, uh, would assist with that. Lastly, on the legislative update, uh, there was a supplemental appropriation ordinance introduced at the Board of Supervisors uh, to allocate $2 million for businesses in SOMA impacted by APEC, $1 million for businesses impacted by transit projects, and this is uh, the intent was for Terraville Street, and $500,000 to SFMTA for supporting the two-hour parking in Portsmouth Square garage and ambassadors uh, during the Lunar New Year festivities in Chinatown. So that is up for a full uh, a vote at the full Board of Supervisors for first reading uh, tomorrow, February 27th. So that's um, the legislative front. And then also, uh, you might have heard me talk about this uh, before, the awning amnesty program. Uh, this was a program that the mayor's office created in conjunction with the different permitting um, offices last year when approximately 200 businesses received either notice of violation or complaints for having awnings installed without a permit on file. Uh, this is actually uh, pretty common, and so this uh, awning amnesty program was designed to make the permitting process easier uh, and to also waive the permit fees if you have an existing awning. Uh, so in order to do um, additional outreach, we're going to be our team, and really thanks to my staff, they're going to do door-to-door -door outreach to those who receive complaints or notice of violations. This would be the second round outreach. And also, uh, we will be holding a workshop in Chinatown on Wednesday, March 6th at 11 a.m. at the City College campus. Uh, and this is really, uh, we're really focusing on the neighborhoods that receive the bulk of the complaints. So um, just want to remind people about that as the program expires June 1st, 2024. And lastly, on behalf of uh, Rick and the Legacy Business Program, wanted to share uh, the upcoming Heritage Happy Hours on March 14th. Uh, there will be a Heritage Happy Hour at Doc's Clock in the Mission. And on April 11th at the Plow and Stars uh, on Clement Street. Um, so those are the two Heritage Happy Hours coming up. And that's all for my updates. And happy to answer any questions. Vice President Zunis. Thank you, Director, for all you're doing so much. Um, I know that that author or that what's coming before the board for the mitigation kind of came out of nowhere because we thought they weren't going to issue those funds. So do we have any more information about what that's going to, um, you know, if there's any pro programmatic language with, with that? Because small businesses are now like, 
scrambling, thinking that they missed the boat, you know, because they weren't at some preliminary meeting. Or, so I don't know how to respond to them. Yeah. So thank you for the question. There are a lot of steps involved. Yeah. It's not very easy for the city to get money out the door. Right. So first, the board has to actually approve the supplemental appropriation ordinance. It takes two reads. So the first read is tomorrow. After that, uh, so we can't just give money directly to businesses unless you're all city suppliers. So uh, OEWD actually needs to bring forth to the Board of Supervisors yeah. a uh, contract amendment for an entity uh, that would partner with the city to cut checks, right, okay. to issue the checks. So that takes um, anywhere from a month to three months potentially uh, because we have to work with the city attorney's office to amend the contracts mm -hmm. to – um, allow that to happen in the board. Again, the board process is just what it is, right? So there's that. And in the meanwhile, um, our office, along with OEWD, is crafting the programmatic elements of the program. So no one has missed anything yep, yet. Yep. Of course, when that is all set and done, we will reach out to those businesses that were impacted um, within all of those zones. So whether it's APEC or, or within the transit improvement project along Terravel. And um, as OEWD Director Sarah Dennis Phillips explained at the budget committee, um, really our goals are we want to make sure that we are allocating these funds efficiently, effectively, that there's equity involved. And um, really, we want to make it easy for the businesses and uh, processing for the city as well so that we can be efficient um, with these funds. So all again, all of the programmatic elements are being developed, so no one has missed anything yet. Thank you. Very helpful. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I just wanted to commend Rick. He's not here, but if you're watching um, those heritage nights, those those are fun. Mm -hmm. And like the one, the first one I attended, um, we went to the, that house. I think on um, Franklin. I had never been there my whole life, and got a tour, got some history. It was pretty cool. Um, went to Pops, but I think I, I missed everybody by the time I left. But um, they was thrilled. I had some drinks. Even met people with Pops tattoos. So like it's cool. They're they're really exciting, and they really promote the businesses. Um, let's see. Are any other comments, questions? No? Um, any members of the public who would like to make comments? Seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. And next item, please. Item 10, Commissioner Discussion and New Business. This is a discussion item allowing the President, Vice President, and Commissioners to report on recent small business activities, make announcements that are of interest to the small business community, and make inquiries of staff. Allows Commissioners to introduce new agenda items for future consideration by the Commission. Commissioners, any new business? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I just have a I just have a comment regarding the the closures of the off and on ramps in the Mission District for the potential 49er Super Bowl win, which we don't talk about the game because we're never going to talk about the game. It's like 2002 World Series Giants. We're not going to ever talk about that. We just forget it like it never happened. But um, I think, and and I want to prefix this. Um, I am in support with what MTA and the police department is trying to do. They're trying to to not have chaos, to not have unruly celebrations, and I totally get that. And we've seen what's happened in the past during the warrior celebration. So 
I, I totally understand what they're getting from, but I think for small businesses in our neighborhood, we're missing a golden opportunity for what I call those home run days when everything gets sold out in your business, whether you're a taqueria, you know, a gift shop. These are the days when you have so much regional traffic that it's one of those days that makes the year for you sometimes in small businesses. And I just would like to like put on record that I think we have a game plan because when we do Carnival, when we do the other Las Americas, when we do the Selena Lowriding, when we do King of the Streets, which are all Northern California regional events, which attract the same amount of people, the police department, SFMTA, they coordinate with community groups, with the Lowrider Council, with all the various organizations in the mission. And these events are successful, event-free in the sense with, with no chaos. And it's a boom for our small businesses. So I would like them to consider any potential celebration, see it as an opportunity for our small businesses in our community, as opposed to like just hitting the hammer, let's close it down, let nobody in, because it actually becomes worse for our businesses. I'll give you an example. My nonprofit has a um, El Tiangue, where we place the street vendors in. That day, they shut down all the parking on Mission and 24, towed several cars. They killed businesses even in the day because nobody could park on Mission Street and nobody could park on 24th. And culturally, Sunday is huge for us. People go to church, and it's regional church because people still come all the way from where they're at to St. Peter's or Mission Dolores, and they killed it for us. Nobody could park on all Mission from 16th to, like, Cesar Chavez and all of 24th Street. As opposed to be a boom day, it became one of the worst days of the year for our businesses. And then the Niners didn't win, which we're not going to talk about. But seriously, this is these are missed opportunities for our small businesses in our community. So I just wanted to highlight that. Thank you. Um, a couple, uh, couple of things. From earlier, I would like to... I'd like to see if our commission can consider bringing in either SF Travel or um, I'm not sure if there are any other entities that focus on more leisure travel because SF Travel I think does a lot of the conventions and um, and other types of relationships but there are some smaller entities um, I know in North Beach there's like a new business that came up um, where they're really working on like local neighborhood travel. They also have a little storefront that focuses on um, locally made goods. And um, <laughs> I'm looking at you like you know you know every new business, Director Day. <laughs> um, but I do have their contact information. But um, but it, you know I'd like to kind of figure out who we can talk to to really um, think more about um, leisure travel because there are certain things that like for me talking to tourists they're in they're in Chinatown right and they're always asking me well where should I go and so I give them a little you know what to see what to do in Chinatown and then I always send them to the tunnel tops like I'm sure everybody who comes into my shop has heard me talking about the tunnel tops park like in the Presidio and I'm like go check out the tunnel tops it's like a fantastic view of Golden Gate of the Golden Gate Bridge have you guys all been to the tunnel tops it's like <laughs> it's like amazing and then um the other thing is um the Crosstown Trail the Crosstown Trail is like a walking trail that takes you from one um corner by 
like um, in Viz Valley, like from Candlestick, it, it'll take you all the way to Ocean Beach. And I know we have some people in our lives who are crazy fanatical walkers and they will walk that trail and they're going to be launching a double cross which goes like in the other kind of direction and so there are a lot of um and these are all like not the not the tunnel tops park but i mean these are this is like a grassroots movement i think bob siegel um created the crosstown trail he came into the shop the other day and and talked to me about the double cross. These are opportunities for our merchant corridors to have activities around, you know, how do we get people to do the trail and stop at our our shops, stop, have some coffee along the way, and for us to, um, you know, promote our city in a way that is very grassroots and real. And I think that's what most travelers want, right? Like, they want to know the hidden gems. They want to know where they can say hi to people, know people, um, and that's what we want for them, to have a very positive experience here. What's your address on Waverly Place? Um, my address is 162 Waverly. Well, there you go. You could be the new tourist center for San Francisco. <laughs> go, to, go to see President Huey. <laughs> see me. I'll tell you where to go, where to eat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it would be wonderful for us to have, I think there was some momentum towards that with SF Travel prior to pandemic, you know, knowing that second, third time travelers to San Francisco want to see our neighborhoods. But I think that's true, it seems like for all travelers right now, that they want to see our neighborhoods. So if they're, you know, if we can kind of just give thought to how we can um, help propel that movement. Um, the other piece is, I recently had to start up all my utilities because it's a new business, and I realized that, um, you know, recology is is quite an investment for any business. Um, and recently, I've been hearing some um, talk with some of the merchants that I know um, about how you know it's a challenge when you have so much um, cardboard right? Like after hours and cardboard now is something that is not necessarily part of your regular pickup. So there are additional fees added to things when you're putting out cardboard. I think we all know up up here, you know, and I think there are some efforts in some neighborhoods to almost do um, something like where you have like a cardboard co-op, right? Like there's like one operate, like one merchant who's like, Hey, I'm going down to the recycling place. Like I borrowed my friend's truck does anybody want me to take some stuff? I mean, these are like amazing people who are just doing these things for one another. Like this is crazy. But I feel like for us as merchants, that is that is a part of doing business, right? We're going to have shipments of things coming through that we need to then account for the cardboard. Like it's just gotten very expensive. I think sometimes additional bundles have cost some of my um, businesses like over $150 um, a pickup. And then most recently, like when I got my um, new trash cans, I decided to go for locked ones because I didn't want them to be tampered with. So per like time they open and close or whatever it is, you know, those are all like added up. And so my trash, I mean, I don't generate that much trash. I'm not a food business, but it's like, the amount that I pay for Recology is actually one of my highest utilities. So um, I just wanted to kind of like put that out there that um, that for small businesses, even the utilities that we use, you know, 
those add up. So it's not just about rents, but it's about all of our monthly costs that those things um, can can get quite high. So I'd like to kind of like see if we can have a better relationship perhaps with Recology to understand the small business environment right now. Um, and then, oh, somebody stole my trash cans. And But, you know, it was... <laughs> Somebody stole my trash cans, like, the second time I put them out. They were, like, brand new. But, you know, I do want to give props to Recology. They did replace those trash cans for me, so I do appreciate that. But, um, but yeah, I'd like for us to have a conversation so that they can kind of, you know, maybe hear from us, and we can kind of spend some time just gathering some information for them, which might be helpful for them to be able to hear on a more, like, holistic level versus just getting complaints or calls uh, one off in their call center. So um, I think those are pretty much what I have. Any, oh, Director Tang. Yes, thank you for bringing up all those issues. I just want to respond really quickly and uh, to your question about SF travel and leisure travel. So um, our office has been engaging with SF travel to figure out more creative ways to draw more of uh, visitors to our local small businesses. Um, but also just keep in mind that they are a membership-based association. So we are, again, trying to do what we can um, uh, aside from that, that structure. Uh, and also just to remind everyone that Shop Dine SF, which is the campaign that our office runs, is really the way that we are trying to promote um, uh, people, visitors getting more deeply into the neighborhoods because what we have noticed is that all those other travel sites they don't curate lists as you know well um and so all of the um, guided walks and tours that are on shop Zine sf for each neighborhood they they came from the community they came from the local whether it's a merchants association or other association in the community we asked them to give us like what are your top like 9 to 12 stops in your corridor so those are we really encourage people to go to shopline sf and check out those um, pages and um, you know if we need to do a better job of promoting that we certainly will try to but we also have um, a social media for shopline sf that was launched uh, about i would say maybe almost gosh over a year ago and so those publicized constantly um, events that are happening in corridors that will again incentivize people to go out um, not just to your typical you know like Fisherman's Wharf or Pier 39 but really throughout the entire city. One of my um, maybe pie in the sky wishes would be that like what if like all of several of our sites were all kind of linked together. Like if Shopdyne SF's itineraries also linked with like SFMTA's like travel routes and like, you know, like if we were able to do kind of like, I think we are already have on the Shopdyne like a one day itinerary or like, you know, what to do in an afternoon for most neighborhoods and things. I think if our transit, you know, um, our public facing kind of transit um, information kind of help link certain things, maybe not formally, but on more like ad space or other types of like marketing, like things that might be more attractive for a traveler to realize how interconnected our neighborhoods actually are. Because um, maybe, you know, just seeing the stops, sometimes you don't realize what what's around the stops. So, um, but yeah, it would be cool if things were, if our city agencies could kind of like work together on certain um, initiatives. 
Um, oh, and in terms of membership structure for SF Travel, is there still a membership tier for um, associations? Uh, I am not as familiar with their membership structure, but we can certainly find out. Okay, because that might make the cost like um, you know accessible for small smaller size businesses. Oh, um, anything else, Director Tang? Okay, um, Commissioner Benitez. You know, I just realized it probably. Um, um, I think my question was already answered, or my comment was already answered, just in regards to. Um, one of the things I always love to do is going to different corridors and getting an actual merchant map and then scaling that. But it sounds like Shopify and SF already does something similar to that. So um, I don't know. I think it'd be something, you know, you know, very cool to promote. I know that, you know, it all starts here. It got such a lot of great publicity um, to that campaign. Um, so, you know, whether it's a QR code or something similar to that or something to put in the window, like I'd love to find a way to support um, that to, you know, help drive traffic and just help promote um, that from a collaborative perspective, so mm -hmm. I think it'd be super interesting. Um, any other new business? Vice President Suzunas. Thank you. I wanted to see if if Cal Recycle has reached. Uh, sorry, not Cal Recycle. Department of Environment has reached back out to us about that presentation they postponed. Because I, I feel like there's some, there's definitely state funding starting to be issued from, from the Cal Recycle Agency. Um, and there's more CRV taxes that have been added recently on, on items uh, for redemption. So I'm just wanted to touch base, see if anything's heating up. If it's not, it's not. But I just saw that the state is starting to have movement on that, so we should know if money's coming into SF for anything. I haven't heard anything yet, but we can certainly check in. Okay, cool, thank you. All right, any public comment? No, nope. seeing no public comment, public comment is closed. And next item. Item, ele item 11, adjournment, SFGovTV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. We will end with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco. If you need assistance with small business matters, continue to reach out to the Office of Small Business. Meeting adjourned. <laughs>